What's up, everyone? I am so excited to be here today. I'm so excited for this new series and the things that we get to discuss and learn together on all of our campuses. Brentwood, congrats. I heard you guys had 2,200 people there the last week, and that's insane and awesome and incredible. We're so excited. We know a lot of you are back this weekend, so welcome. Welcome to our friends watching online and for our friends reading this Inside the Incarcerated Church. This is the first week of our new series and possibly the most intense series we've ever done here at Cornerstone, and we've called this series You Asked For It because you asked for it. These are questions that you asked us to answer. We've compiled the results from a survey we sent out to over 10,000 people, and you guys gave us a great response. It was really easy to pick which five questions you want us to cover over five weeks. It's really easy to tell what was important to you. Um, but you asked a lot of other great questions too, so we're talking about revisiting this whole concept in the fall again. So, uh, so hopefully we get to do that together. But our approach through this series is to look at each topic that you ask for through the lens of Scripture, to be faithful to the Bible's instruction about what the Bible says about each of these topics, at least to the best of our ability, and I say that because you guys ask some pretty complex questions, uh, questions that come with layered, complicated answers, so we're gonna do our best, but there are people here today who think differently about these questions, would answer these questions differently than the people that they're sitting directly next to. I mean, there are people on our staff who would answer these questions differently and who think we should answer these questions differently than we're going to that, uh, that think differently than other people on our staff. So. This is, this is some, some crazy stuff, it's intense stuff, it's complicated, but one of the things I would encourage us to do through the next five weeks is to be gracious. Let's be gracious as we enter into these topics, let's be aware of differences, let's be open to what God might want to teach us, and let's approach each of these weeks with our eyes wide open. A few weeks ago, I took my son Jericho to get a checkup. He's getting ready for kindergarten, so we had to go do all the kindergarten shots and, and get the whole thing taken care of. And we, we walk in, and the nurse, the first thing the nurse wanted to do was to do his eye exam. And so he told Jericho to read a line from the eye chart, and Jericho did a great job. And then he told Jericho to cover one eye and read an eye, or a line from the eye chart. And then he said, okay, Jericho, now cover your other eye and read a line. So Jericho, with both hands over both eyes, said, Dad, this is going to be so hard. And I was like, I agree, son. Um, but here's the deal. I think if we enter into our conversations over these next five weeks with our eyes closed, shut off to, shut off to any possibility of learning something new, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're just checking Cornerstone out, regardless if we don't open our eyes to new possibility and new points of view, we will not learn and we will not grow. It will be so hard to move forward. Our hope is that each weekend's teaching is the beginning of a conversation that will pour over into your groups, around your dinner tables, and uh, in, into your circles, dialogue that happens outside of this building. So with all that said, let's dig into our question today that you asked for, and here's the question you asked. You said, why do Christians believe that Christianity is the only religion that can be true? Why is that? Thanks for such an easy question to kick off the series. I appreciate you guys a lot. Now, now at the core of this question is one word, exclusivity. This is a matter of enormous concern in the world when it comes to faith and religion. 
How can you claim that your religion is the one true religion? In the world today, there are 1.8 billion Muslims, 1.1 billion Hindus, nearly 500 million Buddhists, and hundreds of millions of followers in religions such as Judaism, Sikhism, Taoism, ancestral worship, tribal religions, and so on. There's many others. Each of these religious systems claim a different faith than Christianity. I should also say that there are about one billion people who would label themselves or categorize themselves as either secular, agnostic, or atheist. There are also 2.3 billion Christians in the world. So, out of all those religions, what makes your religion the one? Some of the underlying angsts that comes with today's question is the notion that in a world with all these religious viewpoints... Isn't it arrogant to insist that your religion is the right religion when there are many equally intelligent and good people in the world who hold different beliefs than you do? And it may not only sound arrogant to some, but I think to some people, this whole concept can even be threatening. Religion has a very strong tendency to divide people. It divides us internationally. It divides us around our dinner table. It divides us around our, our neighborhood barbecues. It separates people. Over the course of human history, we've seen religion lead to marginalization, oppression, abuse, and violence. It's actually why people are backing away from religion today. There is a growing number of people who categorized themselves in 2018 as a nun. And no, not a Whoopi Goldberg type nun. This is different than that. Um, that's an N-U-N nun. This is an N-O-N-E nun. Some of you here today would say, yeah, that's me. I am a nun, someone who does not associate with the church, but you're here because your friend keeps inviting you and you want to get them off your back. I'm sorry to tell you they're going to keep inviting you, but we're glad you're here. So thank you. But, but nuns, here's what a nun is. A nun is someone who is not hostile toward and not affiliated with. They want nothing to do with religion. 23% of Americans fall in this category. 35% of millennials fall in this category. People who say, we are done with religion, we're done with the church, we don't need it. The thing that breaks my heart about that number is that I know a lot of people who categorize themselves as a nun have actually migrated from the church. That saddens me. But I also know that one of the main reasons that someone who is a nun decided to become a nun is because of this concept of the exclusivity of religion, which is, which is actually a contradictory line of thinking. And let me explain that. In his book, The Reason for God, which if you not, have not read this book, this is a phenomenal resource. Uh, Timothy Keller actually tackles a lot of the questions we're gonna ask in this series. So for some extra reading, I encourage you to pick this up. But in his book, the reason for God, Timothy Keller says that anyone who is skeptical about religion and approaches religion this way, that they think that if everyone just adopted their ideas of religion, then the world would be a much less divisive place. The problem with this line of thinking is that it's impossible to refute religion on the grounds of exclusivity without making an exclusive claim in the process. 
You can't say religion is exclusive without making an exclusive claim about your own beliefs. It's like saying, I love all Bay Area sports teams, but then only rooting for the team that has the best record. That is a contradictory line of thinking, and it actually makes you a terrible person. Just pick one team. Um, but, this, but this concept, this concept illustrates an, impo- an important point for us, and that's that religions are exclusive. Um, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, folk religions, Judaism, even atheists hold exclusive beliefs. The fact is that all religions, even ones that don't believe in a God, are exclusive. And Christianity is not an exception to this. Christianity is only one of many religions, philosophies, worldviews that hold on to exclusive truth claims. Let me give you a couple examples of some of the exclusive statements that Jesus made about himself. The first statement we read in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus did not mince his words here. He's saying in order to get eternal life, in order to have forgiveness and mercy, if you need a fresh start, if you need redemption, there's only one way to get those things, and that is by going through me. Jesus says there is no other way. I'm it. And then in John 8, 24, here's what Jesus says. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. In other words... In other words, and Jesus says this in in many places, many different times, many different ways. Jesus says, I love you. Each of you are precious and you're made in God's image. But all people, every person has been born with this disease called sin. You see, the Christian understanding of the human condition is that we've been born imperfect, tarnished with, with sin, and so every human being has this mixture of, of godlikeness and beauty and design, but also fallenness and brokenness and pain and hurt. And Jesus says, you've got this, this cancer of the soul called sin. But he goes on to say, there's, there's a cure And that cure is me, but without me, you will die from sin. And that's either absurd, arrogant, and appalling, or if it's true, if what Jesus said is true, then it is the most loving thing in the world. Now, notice that these two examples that we just gave of Jesus' exclusivity recorded by John are completely focused on the concept of salvation, how a person is redeemed, how a person gets new life. And John has more to teach us about this because not only did he record the sayings of Jesus, but he himself had an opinion about the gospel and its uniqueness, and he writes writes about it in a letter to some first century Christians. And this is where we're gonna dive in today. Turn with me to 1 John chapter four, verses one through 10. As you turn there in your Bibles or your phone apps or however you're, you're gonna read this today, let me just say that most of the time as we go through this series, the, the questions that you ask don't necessarily have scripture that go right at the heart of the question you ask, um, which is probably why there are such big questions in Christianity and outside of Christianity. Um, but I think I found a good one for us to, to study today, and we're gonna hop around a lot between these 10 verses, 
but, uh, but, I, but I hope to show you, the, the thing I hope to show you is that there is a great paradox of Christian faith found here in this text, a paradox that I'm going to talk about a lot today. As I told Pastor Steve what I was going to teach about this weekend, he said, oh, you should make a joke about a paradox. He said, tell him about a pediatrician and a dentist and how that's a pair of docs. <laughs> Get it? Like pair of doctors? And I was like, no, that's too grandpa for me, so I'm not going to do that, but I wanted you guys to know. So... Um, so here's the paradox at play. Here's the, here's the paradox at play that we find in this text. The exclusivity of Christian belief and the inclusivity of Christian behavior. And I think this paradox helps us answer why we believe the Christian faith is true, for those of us who believe this. And once I unpack this paradox. But before I dig in, let's, let's take note of a couple things. Let's read verse one together. Dear friends, Chapter four, verse one of 1 John. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, John is most likely writing about teachers that are teaching false doctrine. So if he's writing about teachers, why then did he say spirits instead of teachers? Well, famous priest and Christian thought leader John Stott once said that religious views are not intellectual phenomena. We read the word spirits here instead of the word teachers because religious views are deeper than intellect. This conversation that we're having is more than just a cerebral conversation. It concerns matters of the heart and matters of the soul. And as we move forward today, we have to recognize and not look past the fact that when we talk about religion, there is faith involved. And one more thing before we really dig into the paradox I was talking about. Look at verse 5 with me. Here's what John wrote. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Okay, who are the who are the they that John is writing about here? In John's day, the they were gnostics. That's, that's who he was warning the early church about, people who, who believed that real life exists in the spirit realm only and that they have a higher knowledge of truth. That's who they were. But if we were to take this text and apply it today, the they for the church today might be critics of Christianity, your, your coworkers or your friends or your family members who can't believe you really buy into all this. It's shocking to them. Um, they, they would say, hey, can you just keep your religion to yourself? They, they would say, hey, don't impose your beliefs on me. They would say, I have a different worldview, and I'm entitled to that. And they are. But even in the midst of, of criticism, here's the deal with Christians. Christians still believe they have the truth. And in order to understand why Christians really do believe all of this, it's important to understand what is exclusive to Christianity, namely the things that are unique to the Christian faith system. What I'm about to unpack for us is what is so appealing to so many. Jesus' approach is different than anything and anyone else, and this is what those of us who believe in Jesus Christ have stepped into. It's what has caught us. It's what we believe with every fiber of our being, and these beliefs are unique to Christianity. It's the exclusivity of Christian belief described right in this very text. 
All right, we ready? You might wanna write some of this down. Um, there's not gonna be a test later, but just it's good stuff to hold on to. So the, the, the first exclusive belief we read in this passage is that Jesus came. Look back at verse two with me. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come. This is so important because we don't read that Jesus was born, although we do know that Jesus was born, but we also know that Jesus came. To say that Jesus has come into the world means that Jesus was somewhere else before he came into the world. Well, every religion says that its founder is a human being only and they worship some form of deity, that deity did not come to earth and take human form. Christianity, though, says that in Jesus Christ, God comes into the world. It's right here in verse two. Don't miss it. God comes into the world. And Christians believe that God did this in order to save a broken humanity, in order to restore the relationship between God and human beings. Which is why a lot of Christians, when you hear us talk about our faith, you'll hear that a lot of us don't talk about a religion, but we talk about a relationship. Because God came to us to be with us in order to redeem creation. We learn a little bit more about this in verse two when we read the rest of that verse because how did Jesus come? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. These three words right here are so important for our conversation today because other religions, they desire to, 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 to liberate you from the flesh, to escape from the flesh. Eastern religion would tell you that the physical world is an illusion while some Western religions say that the flesh is real and the flesh is bad. But through morality, by doing good works, by doing the right things, you can actually earn your way into heaven. And for some of us, that might sound like Christianity, but it's not. That is not what Christianity says. Christianity says that at the birth of Jesus, God received a body not to escape the flesh, but to redeem it to get rid of disease and brokenness and pain and corruption and death. Christian salvation lies not in the escape from this world, but in the restoration of this world in relationship with Jesus, to save the world from its brokenness. And you guys, there's such a massive thing at play here that's unlike any other religion. We can't earn our salvation. We can't work for it. Look at verse 10, end of this passage. Here's what we read in verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning. And just real quick, whenever we read the word atoning, let's think at one, at oneing, because, because that's what God did. When he sent his son for us, he did that so we could be at one with him again. So God sent his son as an at oneing sacrifice for our sins. In other religions, if you wanna be saved, you have to perform the truth. You have to do the work. You have to earn your salvation. Love God and love everyone else and God will bless you and save you. This is what other religions say. But it is absolutely not what Christianity says. Yes, I, I get it. Hold on a sec before we jump to conclusions. Yes, Jesus did say those are the two most important commandments, love God and love everyone else. But did Jesus say that this 
is what will save you. No. No, the gospel says what we read right here, and this is exclusive to Christianity. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God poured himself out for all people, even people who aren't good people, even people who aren't loving people. Jesus is a savior who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died so that we could all be covered by his grace. This is love. And this whole conversation about not earning your salvation is one of the craziest things about faith in Jesus. Check this out. The gospel is the only faith system I know of that people who don't believe in this faith system can actually be better people than those who do. Let me say that again. People who don't believe in Jesus Christ can actually be better people than those who do. And here's why. Because Jesus is the one who performs the truth. The action is on him, and you can't receive his salvation unless you believe in Jesus Christ's sacrifice for your sins. You still have to accept it. But when you realize this, you also accept that it's not through what you can do, not through your works or anything else you attempt to do to earn your salvation. Or we could even put it this way. You can't receive the salvation of Jesus Christ unless you admit that you're not better than everyone else. This is exclusive to Christianity. And it's really hard for some of us to admit, right? Because we're such good people. At least I know I am. Um, but, But here's the deal, here's the deal. If you believe the gospel, you'll see that there are morally better people than you who don't believe the gospel. Here's why. The gospel humbles you. No other religion postures themselves like this. Other religions exalt the person who believes, but the gospel humbles you. This is unique and exclusive, and when we realize what this produces, I think we realize that exclusivity can actually be a good thing. I mean, for anyone who's dating someone right now, you know that exclusivity can actually be a good thing, especially when you have that conversation about whether you and your girlfriend or boyfriend are exclusive or not. That's an important conversation because if one of you thinks you're exclusive and the other one doesn't, that's bad news. That is bad news for everyone involved. Like, to this day, my wife and I have been married for 10 years. She still won't let me kiss anyone else. We're exclusive, and I think that's a good thing, mostly because I married up. Like, I totally outkicked my coverage, if you know what I mean. But... But here's the deal. I believe, I believe that these exclusive Christian beliefs that we just covered are good because we understand the inclusivity that these exclusive beliefs produce. Because while people who are outside of the faith system can be morally better people than me, and they're out there, they're actually not that hard to find. While that is true, while that is extremely and entirely true, I still get an invitation. I am included. And the even more insane thing is that even people who are morally worse people than me, they get an invitation too. We are all invited into relationship with Jesus through his saving grace, and we experience that grace when we step into relationship with him, when we declare with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that he is in control. That's when we step into relationship. That's when we experience his grace, and this is an opportunity that is available to everyone.
No other religion is this inclusive. No other faith system welcomes all of us in, and this is at the core of my belief in Jesus. When, when you look at other religions, and if you're searching for truth right now, I encourage you, do your work. Look at all the religions. Don't just take my word for it. But as you do, I think what you'll find is that Christianity is the most inclusive. It's the one that appeals to our heart. It meets the needs that we long for as human beings, belonging, connectedness, relationship, inclusive love that does not judge and has no prerequisites. If you don't follow Jesus and you're searching for truth, one of the most important questions you can ask yourself is this. Which set of exclusive beliefs produces the most loving, inclusive behavior. When it comes to the good news of Jesus, I am given an invitation. You are given an invitation. He loved us first and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for the sin that leads to our death, and we've been invited into relationship with him regardless of what we've done. And when we respond with faith to the most loving act in human history, in Jesus Christ and in his mission and vision to restore the world, that's when redemption happens not only for us, but for everyone around us. If you aren't part of this church, if you aren't part of this church today and you're just checking us out, my hope and my sincere prayer is that when you walked into this building or any of the buildings on any of our campuses, that you felt this from this church, that you felt loved and included. It's what our exclusive beliefs are pushing us toward. Look at verse four. You, dear children, are from God. Oh, we have, we have a slide for it. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. God is in us. God is consuming and directing his people. And because of that, when we read verses seven through eight from this same passage, when we read these two verses, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. When we read these two verses, for those of us who believe this, who, who are attempting to live this out, we realize that the spiritual impulse, the instinctive behavior, if you believe in Jesus Christ, is that through the, through the exclusivity of Christian belief, it produces in us the inclusivity of Christian behavior. Followers of Jesus living their lives in true imitation of Jesus should be, should be the most loving, inclusive people in the history of the world. And this might be a great reminder for some of us who follow Jesus. And maybe for some of us that are here today who don't, maybe this is something that's appealing enough for you to want to step into. And as I say that, I also want to make sure that I do not dismiss the damage and horrific injustice done by the church in the name of Jesus throughout history. I mean, we can just take the Crusades because we all know that happened. We can all point to that and they were terrible and horrific. But here's the deal with the Crusades. That was exclusive beliefs trying to manifest itself in exclusive behavior. It was not and it is not the way of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure we can think of things in more recent history where the church has tried to manifest its exclusive beliefs through exclusive behavior towards specific people groups 
that maybe we need to repent of. Not maybe, we need to repent of. And maybe for some of us, there's some ways that we've done this in our own lives where we've excluded people because of how we've held on to our exclusive beliefs, and that's something we need to work through. Because if Christians can hold on to their most fundamental Christian beliefs, if we can believe this and we can live this out, we can live out our faith in a crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, then there can be a powerful push for peace in a broken world. And we saw this very early on in the beginning of Christianity when it created the most loving and inclusive community ever. If you just look at the first couple centuries of of Christians, you'll see this. The the exclusive-inclusive paradox was fully at play, um, especially when you compare it to the the beliefs of the culture around them in that day. Um, The Greco-Romans, for instance, their religious views were, were wide open, Everyone had his or her own God. They were extremely tolerant. At least you'd say they were extremely tolerant. Except for this like, group of Christians that said, there's only one God, and they didn't like them very much, and they didn't treat him very well. But besides that, they were very tolerant. But the lives and practices of Greeks and Romans were pretty ruthless and did not reflect tolerance. They didn't mix their rich and poor. There was actually like a huge gap between these two people groups. On the other hand, the exclusive Christians, the ones who insisted that there is only one God, the resurrected Savior Jesus Christ, their lives and their practices were extremely welcoming and open to the marginalized and the oppressed around them. While the poor were despised by most, the Christians gave generously not only to the people in their own faith system, but to people in other faith systems. At that time, women had very low status. Uh, Female babies were being murdered. Women were forced into marriages. They had a complete lack of economic equality. But Christianity gave women much greater security and equality than the ancient world had ever seen. Timothy Keller writes in The Reason for God, he says that during the terrible urban plagues of the first two centuries, Christians cared for all the sick and dying in the city, often at the cost of their own lives because they were catching the disease the people that they were helping were inflicted with. Now, why would such an exclusive belief system lead to behavior that was so open to others? Well, it was because Christians had the strongest possible resource for practicing sacrificial service, practicing generosity, practicing peacemaking, because at the very heart of their view of reality was a man who died for his enemies and prayed for them while he did so. A man who included everyone, even in his death. One of the most fascinating things about Jesus is that while he hung on a cross, While the innocent Jesus hung on a cross next to this criminal who was convicted of a crime, which in most other religions, if you're convicted of a crime and you're hanging on a cross because of that, that's justice. But what does the innocent Jesus say to the convicted criminal who defended him at the cross? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, it's no wonder why early Christians lived a radically different life and had a culturally scandalous way of dealing with people who were nothing like them. They followed Jesus. They saw how all these broken and sinful people liked the perfect Jesus. They they observed how much people from different cultural backgrounds and class standing enjoyed just being in the company of Jesus. Time and time again, these early Christians witnessed that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. 
which is weird because people who are nothing like me can't stand me. But early Christians, early Christians thought that this statement about Jesus should be true for them as well. And to be honest, the same should be true for us today, for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. To join Jesus in the redemption of creation, to represent the love and inclusivity of Jesus. See, if you follow Jesus and you want to be like Jesus, and the reason why I believe Christianity differs from all the rest is because when you take this gospel into the center of your life, you can't be exclusive. Can't do it. Instead, you will be humbled, you will serve, and people who are nothing like you will like you because you will look like Jesus. You will be inclusive, which is unique to your exclusive beliefs. I think I've unpacked this distinctive, these, these distinctive Christian beliefs enough for today, but, but there's one last thing I do wanna share with you. Remember earlier how I talked about how faith is more than just intellectual phenomena. Matters of the faith are also matters of the heart and matters of the soul. About two years ago, uh, my wife and son and I were invited on a family vacation with a couple family friends to uh, Cabo San Lucas. And we... Uh, we were hanging out, me and my friend Casey were hanging out at the pool area of this hotel and there was this like swim up bar at the pool area where you could get like root beer and stuff. And, um, <laughs> and, and so we're hanging out and we're starting to meet all these new people and we're doing the typical like, um, what's your name, where are you from, what do you do for a living, which is always super fun for me in that social setting. And, <laughs> and so we're hanging out and we're, we're meeting all these people. One guy was a crab fisherman from Alaska and I was like, that's awesome because I love that Deadliest, Deadliest Catch show and he was missing a finger so it seemed legit. Um, <laughs> so, so we started talking and then it got to be my turn and I said, my name's Steve and I'm from the Bay Area and I'm a pastor. And right when I said I'm a pastor, this giant guy who's a naval officer from Alabama, his name is Scott. He looked at me and said, give me your best spiel. And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> And I swear, as soon as, as, soon as uh, he said that, I, I thought Casey was standing next to me, but as soon as Scott said that, it seemed like Casey was behind him, and he was like, yeah, give him your best spiel. And I was like, you're supposed to be on my side. But, but apparently he wasn't. Um, so I told, I told Scott, I was like, I would love, I would love to tell you about why I believe in Jesus. I would love to tell you about my relationship with Jesus. And I said, you know, I, I grew up in the church. My mom and dad are pastors, but I didn't start following Jesus until college. I didn't start following Jesus until I could figure it out for myself. And I said there were a few moments that were really important for me. One of them was when I was in junior college, and my atheist history teacher told us that he hated talking about Jesus. And the reason he hated talking about Jesus was because he could not explain why all these disciples of Jesus who ran away and hid and scattered when Jesus was being arrested and crucified, why after Jesus supposedly rose from the dead, which is how my atheist history teacher always said it with these little quotes, supposedly rose from the dead, and this is all historically verifiable, those same disciples all of a sudden were giving their lives for the cause of Christ. And I told Scott, that one's huge for me. And I also told Scott about some of the stuff we covered today about the early church and how people who, who were watching the way Christians were being tortured and, and persecuted and murdered 
and watching how generous and compassionate and loving they were all at the same time that they started joining the way, the movement of Jesus Christ, just because they saw how Christians treated other people and how Christians faced intense persecution and death. I said, that one's big for me too, Scott. And I said, but there's one more thing that's really important to me in my faith with Jesus. I said, I wanna tell you a little bit about what happened on the road to Emmaus. And the story goes that after Jesus, we read this in the Gospels, after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, he was walking with a couple of his disciples on this road to Emmaus, and his disciples were kept from recognizing him. And they were talking with Jesus about how they wished Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we guess not, because he died. And it wasn't until later when Jesus revealed himself to these disciples and they experienced Jesus, they experienced the resurrected Savior, that that's when they believed. And I told Scott that day at that pool, I said, the same is true for me. I've experienced Jesus, and I can't get past that. I've experienced his love. I've experienced his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his provision, his peace, his self-control, his patience, his kindness. And now I'm just trying to do everything I can to live my life imitating Jesus every single day. Scott and I had a great conversation that day, and we still email each other occasionally, And my hope and prayer for Scott is that he steps into a relationship with Jesus, that he experiences Jesus. He hasn't done it yet. I'm hoping and praying that he will. I think he will. But I'm hoping and praying that he will. And that's actually my hope and prayer for all of us today, that we would experience the Jesus that can and will radically change our lives. Well, I... I had 40 minutes today to talk about something that could have been an eight-week or eight-month series. Um, Because here's the deal. Life with Jesus, for those of us who believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and we're trying to imitate Jesus through these exclusive beliefs that are producing inclusive behaviors, um, we know that, that our faith in Jesus is so much bigger than what I just said. But I hope, I I really hope I answered the question today. And if I didn't, and I I know I didn't for for some of us, um, I tried my best. But at the very least, I'm praying that this past 40 minutes has been the beginning of a conversation that starts for you. That it starts an awesome dialogue with people or even with us as the church. Because we would love to have that conversation with you. You know, I think some next steps for some of us today, for those of us who believe in Jesus, is to maybe figure out how can we be more inclusive? How can we reflect Jesus, the inclusive Jesus, a little bit more and maybe figure out how we can help people who are nothing like us to like us? For others of us today, you have to do some wrestling this week and figure out if you believe anything that I just said. Even during this next song, as you sit there and and we, we sing this song together, you you should wrestle through the words. Do you believe the words that people are singing around you, people that have given their lives to Jesus? I encourage you to wrestle. I encourage you to fight through that and struggle through that. It's important. And the last thing that I'll say to do, say today 
is that if you don't believe anything that I just said, I really, really hope you felt included today. And I hope you stick with us because we're so glad you're here. Let's pray. Father God, it is a beautiful day today. It's always a beautiful day when we get to gather together as people who are trying to learn more about you, know more about how you're leading and guiding and directing us, God. That as you consume us um, and direct us, Father, that we might be more loving and inclusive people, God, and we ask you today to hold us accountable to that in this community in the East Bay, that when people look at followers of Jesus, when people look at, at Cornerstone Fellowship, that they say, yeah, those people are very inclusive. Even in the midst of their ex exclusive beliefs, they are very inclusive people. They love people, they welcome people, they invite people in. It's refreshing. God, hold us accountable to that. Father, God, I also pray for anyone that's struggling through this or wrestling through this or maybe who doesn't believe anything that I just said, God, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would experience you. Not for any other reason that I want them to know the love and joy and peace that I've experienced in you. You're a good father. I adore you and love you. We adore you and love you. Thank you for today. We pray all of this, Father, in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.